You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. I hope you are doing well. Today is part two in our series on British adventurer Richard Francis Burton. Three notes for today's episode. First, I want to remind you that you can go to our website, explorerspodcast.com, if you want to see maps of Burton's travels, as well as photos of the man and his famous mustache. Second note is with regards to the names in this episode. I want to point out that the names of some places have changed since Burton's time. I generally use the modern-day names of a city or region or wherever. And if something is really significant, I'll mention the old and current name. But please know that I might end up using some names from Burton's world, which can cause a little confusion. I'll try to avoid such things, but I can't promise it won't happen. And a third note is about the major source for today's episode, and that is Burton's book about his journey, called A Personal Narrative of a Pilgrimage to Al-Medina and Mecca. It was published in two volumes, totaling nearly 1,000 pages. The book is incredible in both good and bad ways. The detail is absolutely extraordinary. Burton describes everything that he experiences, and he provides historical and religious context to the reader as well. At times, the book is like a travelogue, describing the people and customs and sites, but he also tells his own story, very personal and, again, very detailed. In a lot of ways, it's overwhelming. That said, I want to stress that what I'm going to talk about today is a tiny fraction of what is described in Burton's books. And if you want to nerd out on this subject, just go to our website, explorerspodcast.com, and I have a link to both volumes, which you can read online for free. Alrighty, enough with notes. On with the show. The year was 1853. Burton had been given leave by the East India Company for one year. With the backing of the Royal Geographical Society, his plan was to go to Egypt, cross over to the port of Suez, and then sail down the eastern coast of the Red Sea. From there, he would strike out into the interior of Arabia for the cities of Medina and Mecca. Initially, Burton had asked for two years' leave, and he had wanted to cross the Arabian Peninsula, a trek of upwards of 2,000 miles, or 3,200 kilometers. However, the company had only given Burton a year's leave, and thus he had to lower his goals. But let us not fool ourselves. If Burton saw a chance to cross the peninsula, he would take it, leave or no leave. As we discussed last time, Medina and Mecca are the two holiest cities in Islam. Mecca is the birthplace of the Prophet Muhammad, and Medina is where he is buried. Mecca is famed for the Kaaba, a cloth-covered, cube-like structure that is Islam's most sacred shrine. Mecca is considered the cradle of Islam, and all Muslims are expected to make a pilgrimage, or hajj, to the city at least once in their life. In Burton's time, it was forbidden for a non-believer to enter the city on the penalty of death. 
For Burton, this would be his hodge. He was a practicing Muslim and followed the tenets of the religion. However, we should be very clear, despite Burton's embrace of Islam, he would almost assuredly be considered a spy if he was discovered. That would mean his execution. This made the upcoming journey enormously dangerous, and I can't stress just how audacious and deadly it was going to be. Burton was going to have to completely immerse himself in his Eastern persona or face exposure. One mistake could doom him. A wrong word, an incorrect gesture. It all had to be perfect all of the time. It was going to be an immense challenge. Byron Farwell, in his biography on Burton, said, quote, More than an Eastern costume and a fluency in Arabic was necessary to prevent discovery. He had to sit, walk, gesture, pray, and think as a Muslim who had grown up in the faith and in Eastern society. End quote. In his book on his journey through Arabia, Burton gives a great example of this. It's the simple action of drinking a glass of water. First, he says, you must hold the glass in a specific way, quote, as though it were the throat of a foe, end quote. Next, before a person drinks, he should say, in the name of Allah, the compassionate, the merciful. When you drink the water, you swallow, not sip. When done, you say, praise be to Allah. If you have a companion, that person should say, pleasurably and health. You are then to reply, may Allah make it pleasant to thee. And I should also note that the water should be drunk while standing. This gives you an idea of what he was facing. The need to act as if he had lived as a Muslim his entire life. It would not be easy. The goals of the Royal Geographical Society and the British government were to fill in the blank on the map that was Arabia. Where were the towns and villages and water sources? Who were the tribes and the peoples? Who were potential enemies and allies? Also, the East India Company was keenly interested in the horse markets to supply the armies in India. Now, going to Mecca and Medina had been done by other Europeans, but often the information they brought back was limited. The most famous person to visit the two cities was Swiss explorer John Ludwig Burckhardt. Burckhardt had gone to both cities in 1814 and 15. His writings would prove to be a great aid to Burton. Another man, George Augustus Wallen, had gone to Medina and Mecca more recently, in 1845. But Wallen had not written a book, just some papers. Burton would write to the man asking questions and seeking advice, but had gotten no reply, as Wallen had recently passed away. Burton would set sail for Alexandria, Egypt, on April 3, 1853. He boarded his ship disguised as Mirza Abdullah, a part Persian, part Arab trader, a persona Burton had perfected over the years in India. Burton had kept his big mustache and had started to grow a beard. On the ship, Burton would practice his role with the aid of a friend, John Larkin, who knew Burton's identity. Once Burton docked in Alexandria, he would travel to the home of Larkin's father and spend more time perfecting his disguise. He would visit the mosques, read the Koran, go to coffee houses, and set up shop as a sort of doctor and holy man. Now, Burton, upon arriving in Alexandria, would realize that he had one problem, and that was because he didn't have a passport, which was required for a person such as Mirza Abdullah. Burton would have to buy one for five shillings, and then spend hours at the office of the police magistrate, and then the Egyptian foreign office, waiting to get it signed. As everyone thought he was a Persian, he was treated badly by the British and the Ottoman officials. In the end, he would have to bribe someone to get his papers approved. So, for Burton's journey, it would come in several legs. The first would be a river voyage from Alexandria to Cairo. From there, it would be a roughly 85-mile, or 135-kilometer, overland trek to the city of Suez, on the northern edge of the Red Sea. The next phase would be a steamer ride south, down the coast, to the city of Yanbu. From there, it would be another overland march to Medina, and then Mecca. At that point, Burton would head back to the Red Sea and return by steamship to Suez. However, he had dreams of making a stab at crossing Arabia and heading to the port of Muscat but that idea was hypothetical. 
With his passport in order, Burton boarded a small river steamer for his journey to Cairo. In his saddlebags, he had a Persian rug, pillow, blanket, water skin, dagger, pen and ink, extra clothing, a sextant, and his medicine chest. He also had 25 golden sovereigns in a concealed money belt. Burton would have given off the aura of a respectable holy man. Not too rich, but definitely not poor. With Burton was a young Indian servant named Noor. Noor was actually a slave to another man, and Burton was essentially renting the kid. Burton did this because having a servant was expected of a man like himself. I want to note that Burton abhorred slavery, just hated it, but he did not have issues using a slave if it was required for his mission. On the steamer, Burton would make friends with several passengers. One man, Haji Wali al-Din, was a merchant heading to Cairo on a legal matter. He and Burton would hit it off. The man would give Burton some valuable advice. He suggested that Burton not travel as a Persian, as they were usually of the Shia or Shiite branch of Islam. Most of those traveling to Mecca would be Sunni Muslims, and the two sects were often in conflict. I want to note that Haji Wali did not know Burton was an Englishman. He was simply suggesting that he not travel as a Persian due to the dangers it might entail. For a variety of reasons, it was not uncommon for a man to travel on the pilgrimage in disguise. As a result, Burton would decide to take on the guise of a Pashtun, a man born in India to Afghani parents. To help explain any sort of issues with his accent, he would say he had lived many years in Rangoon, in what was then called Burma, and today is called Myanmar. He would keep the whole dervish-slash-doctor routine. While in Cairo, Burton would spend some time exploring. He would even visit the tomb of John Ludwig Burkhardt, the man he was now following in the footsteps of. He would attend lectures at the mosque, set up shop as a doctor, and make observations of the city and its people. Now, three things would happen in Cairo that I want to mention. First, Burton's whole journey almost ended before it began, when he was caught out after curfew without a lantern. A person wandering around in the dark without a lantern was considered up to no good. A patrol tried to detain him, and he resisted. It took three or four men to overpower Burton and haul him off to jail. Luckily, Burton would get released the next morning, but it would have been easy for him to have been tossed in a cell and forgotten. The second thing I want to mention is that Burton would meet a young man of about 18 from Mecca named Muhammad al-Basuni. Burton would call him the boy in his book, and if I ever say the boy, it is Muhammad I am referring to. Anyhow, Muhammad was sharp-witted, too sharp-witted according to Burton, who felt he was being overly scrutinized. Burton wondered if the boy was seen through his disguise. The young man was traveling back to Mecca and offered to go with Burton but Burton would decline, wanting to avoid Muhammad's prying. And thus Burton would be rid of the boy, for now, but he has not left our story. And the final thing I want to mention was a serious mistake on Burton's part, which would nearly compromise the entire mission. Burton would meet an Albanian soldier named Ali Aga, and would get roaring drunk with the man. The soldier would cause a ruckus, and soon people were asking some pointed questions about Mirza Abdullah. He said he was on a hajj, yet he was drinking to excess. Was he a hypocrite? Was there more to this man? Recognizing his mistake, Burton quickly packed his bags and made haste. It was time to begin his pilgrimage. With camels and drivers plus his servant, Noor, Burton would set out for an 85-mile, or 135-kilometer, journey across the desert to the city of Suez, which was at the northern end of the Red Sea. Burton would complain about the trek. Bad food, bad people. It was the middle of summer, and here they were going across a desert, and he had an uncomfortable wooden saddle but almost everyone who knew Burton would say that he loved every minute of it. To be out in the open, a challenge before him, was what he thrived on. In fact, one of Burton's most famous quotes was about this very sort of moment. He would say, quote, Of all the gladdest moments in human life, methinks, is the departure upon a distant journey into unknown lands. End quote. 
the journey to Suez was on a well-traveled caravan route, and it was not uncommon for people to congregate together for protection. The desert was filled with bandits and rogue tribesmen, just waiting to pick off anyone foolish enough to travel alone. Burton would join some other travelers, and as usual, he expertly fell into the role of the curious trader-slash-holy-man-slash-doctor, asking questions and gathering information in an innocuous fashion. However, one of the people who would join Burton's group was the boy, Muhammad, who Burton had met in Cairo. Burton was uneasy about the guy, who he felt was paying a bit too much attention to him. And Burton was right to be suspicious. It turns out some of the men had looked through Burton's belongings and found his sextant. This was not something a normal person would carry with them. When Burton was not around, Muhammad would announce to the others that he thought that Abdullah, a.k.a. Burton, was an infidel. After a long discussion, the rest of the men defended Burton. One of them, who had spoken at length with Burton on religious matters, was convinced Abdullah was a true Muslim. No infidel could have spoken so well. Now, I want to note that Burton knew nothing about this at the time. It turns out that one of the men in his group would run into Burton in Cairo several months later and tell the story of Muhammad's suspicions. Only then would Burton find out that he'd almost been unmasked. No matter, Burton had sensed that something was amiss, and so he took great care to not draw any unwanted attention on himself. This included, reluctantly, ditching his sextant. Mohammed, the boy, is going to be pretty much a constant companion with Burton throughout our story. He is a spoiled, petulant young man, but he is clever and resourceful as well. Burton would reach Suez and then book passage on a ship going south to the port of Yanbu, about 550 miles away, or 885 kilometers. From there, Medina was directly west across the desert another 120 miles, or 195 kilometers. Now, Burton could have sailed south on a fancy English steamer, but he felt that would draw attention to himself, which he wanted to avoid, and thus he would travel side by side with thousands of other pilgrims. His ship would depart on July 6th. There were 97 pilgrims on board a vessel made for 60 passengers, which meant cramped, terrible conditions. There were fights, with people literally stabbing each other. Disease and sickness had a field day on the packed boat. In fact, disease was something that was greatly feared as a result of these hodges. We have to remember, this was hundreds of thousands of people coming from all over Africa, Europe, and Asia. There were Persians, Turks, Moors, Indians, Chinese, Africans, Malaysians, and people of a dozen nationalities and races. Thus, a disease could be carried to a thousand different locations. In fact, in 1865, 60,000 people died of the plague brought by pilgrims just in Egypt. Anyhow, the wealth of nationalities and races allowed Burton to blend in easily on the ship. He was just another of the thousands heading to Mecca. The voyage south was made even more uncomfortable by brutally hot weather. People would almost melt away due to the heat, falling into a listless, mind-numbing funk. The heat contributed to more than one death during the journey. The voyage south was, Burton said, people at their worst. But he points out the kindness, such as hardened men, moved to offer food and comfort to children. The voyage to Yanbu would take 12 days. In the evenings, the ship would anchor near shore so the passengers could spend the night on land. However, a couple of nights before reaching the destination, Burton felt a sting on his toe. He thought nothing of it at the time, but he would soon find himself in immense pain. It's believed that he stepped on a poisonous spiked sea urchin. When the ship reached Yanbu, Burton's foot was swollen and he was in terrible pain, and he was unable to walk. For the next couple of days, Burton would recuperate and prepare for his journey inland. He would travel with his servant, Nur, as well as the boy, Mohammed, and some other men he had befriended coming south. Burton would purchase seven days of food and supplies for the road. This included rice, biscuits, butter, dates, bread, tea, and tobacco, and opium. Burton, by the way, used opium for much of his life. He felt that if taken in moderation, it was perfectly safe. For the upcoming trip, Burton would break out a pair of pistols. 
Firearms had been forbidden in Egypt, but in Arabia they were commonplace. Going forward, Burton was going to be entering a world very different than what he'd experienced in Egypt. While these lands were nominally under the control of the Ottoman Empire, who granted dominion of the lands to various local rulers, the interior of Arabia was really ruled by no one. The famed nomadic Bedouins roamed the territory, doing what they wanted, when they wanted, paying nominal allegiance to the land's rulers. This is going to make the upcoming journey to the holy city of Medina rather interesting and deadly. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, explorers. It's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics, like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for thru-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Burton would set out from Medina on July 18, 1853, in a 12-camel caravan. They quickly joined a larger caravan, with more than 200 animals, plus seven Turkish cavalrymen. Ahead of Burton and his fellow pilgrims was 120 miles of desert, filled with bandits and a lot of dust. The good thing was that these were well-traveled routes. There was no way they would get lost. Because of his foot, Burton would have to ride in a litter carried by two camels. This elicited a few derogatory comments, as being carried by a litter was usually reserved for the elderly or sick. But for Burton, he pointed to his swollen, pained toe and shrugged. Also, it would give him a way to discreetly take notes and make sketches. Now with that mention of notes and sketches, I want to take a moment to talk about Burton and his copious note-taking. As we have discussed, the guy took a lot of notes. For Burton, note-taking was done with a risk. He could say some of his notes were just him writing in a diary, but even that made some people suspicious. One tactic he had was to ask some innocuous questions of a person and pretend to write down their answers, but actually write down other notes instead. As most people were illiterate, this wasn't an issue. The Bedouin were especially wary of any note-taking. Burton learned that he could write stuff down by drawing out a horoscope for a person or preparing a charm. As he did this, he wrote down whatever he really wanted. Other times, he wrote notes or made sketches covertly, jotting down stuff on small pieces of paper hidden in the palm of his hand. He would then place these pages in a hollowed-out Koran. As for the sketches, he hid those in canisters in his medicine chest. But he couldn't always do this out in the open, and he had to be careful that his notes weren't discovered. That would be a giveaway that he was an outsider. I cannot imagine how he wrote and drew sketches as he traveled, but Burton did it. 
Again, it was incredibly risky, but for Burton, it was essential to what he was doing. So into the interior, Burton and his comrades would venture. Now, this was not sweeping deserts they were in, but rugged mountains. Medina sits at over 2,000 feet in elevation, or 3,200 kilometers. The routes were hard and dusty, twisting through hills, plains, and valleys. Along the way, there would be small villages and forts. The latter were manned by a handful of soldiers who really ventured outside the posts. A few days after departing, the caravan would join up with another larger caravan, this with an escort of 200 soldiers. However, the soldiers, who were often Albanian, would be forced to withdraw as the caravan entered the lands of the Bedouin. The Bedouins simply did not trust outside forces entering their lands. The Bedouins were a nomadic people, and if anyone controlled the interior of Arabia, it was them. They expected travelers to pay tolls, or blackmail, or whatever you wanted to call it, to move through these lands. And it was not uncommon for the Bedouin to simply take a few shots at the caravan, just to remind them who was boss in the area. Also, Burton noted that the Bedouin often concentrated their fire on any soldiers, the Turks or Albanians, that were with them, a way to poke them in the eye. The most serious fight came when the Bedouin ambushed the caravan on July 24th as they went through a gorge. The problem was that the caravan just couldn't stop, as there was little protection from the Bedouin riflemen hiding in the cliffs, and to try to send out a force of men was essentially suicide. The Bedouin knew the lands and would only cut off and slaughter anyone who dared to venture off the road. Thus, the caravan would have to push through the canyon while under fire. The result was a dozen men killed, as well as several camels and donkeys. The pilgrims pushed on. At dawn the following day, Burton would get his first glimpse of the holy city of Medina, which elicited many poetical proclamations from those in the caravan. It had taken them eight days to reach Medina, over a distance of 120 miles. In addition to sketching the city, Burton would write that he saw, quote, four tall substantial towers and the flashing green dome under which the apostles' remains rested, end quote. The latter is referring to the tomb of the prophet Muhammad. Medina is the second most holy city in Islam. Muhammad had been born in Mecca, but he'd been driven to Medina, where he began his military campaigns to establish the Caliphate of Islam. Medina was where Muhammad would die and be buried. Now that Burton was here, it was time for him to go about playing the part of the dutiful pilgrim. He would spend over a month in the city, staying at the home of a man named Hamid, who Burton had befriended on the journey. Burton never dropped his disguise. With Hamid as a guide, Burton would go to various mosques in Medina, including the Prophet's Mosque, which did not impress him. He would write, quote, It suggested the resemblance of a museum of second-rate art, an old curiosity shop, full of ornaments that are not accessories, and decorated with pauper splendor, end quote. He called the whole place tawdry. Inside, Burton mapped out the mosque, distances and heights and so forth. He would also visit the Green Dome, where inside rested the body of Muhammad. Burton was not able to get a close look at the tomb and expressed doubt that Muhammad was actually buried there. No matter, he treated everything with reverence, just as a good Muslim would do on his hajj. There were other sites in Medina as well. Some places were religious in nature, such as the tomb of Muhammad's favorite daughter. And then there were non-religious interests for Burton. He went to the slave markets, where he recorded the prices of men, women, and children. And he'd heard that Medina had many books, so he sought out libraries. And Medina was rich in books, but mostly religious in nature. Nothing to do with mathematics or medicine. Nothing big would come of his searches. One fun thing that he did was to go to a wall where pilgrims would write their names like tourists on vacation. He couldn't resist joining in, writing, quote, Abdullah, the servant of Allah, end quote. It was dated 1269, Burton using the Muslim calendar. During all of this, Burton would keep up his rituals and prayers, all the while watching and asking questions and writing it all down. And thus, Burton blended in well with the many pilgrims during his time in Medina. 
He was a serious pilgrim, and he embraced the experience. Now, as Burton prepared to depart from Mecca, he would find that his desire to cross Arabia was not possible. This was because the desert tribes were at war with one another, and no one was traveling east. And it was not something he could do alone. It was a thousand plus miles of wilderness, or 1,600 kilometers. And thus, Burton's dream of an epic crossing of Arabia was done. He would have to settle for a journey to Mecca. Burton would leave Medina on August 31st, 1853. He was part of a great caravan, 7,000 people, including 2,000 cavalry. The caravan, which had originated in Damascus, would cross the Nejd Desert. This excited Burton, as most caravans took the coastal Sultan's Road. The route across the Nejd Desert was one that no European had ever taken. For the journey to Mecca, Burton would hire camels and bring along food, water, and supplies for 14 days. Food included flour, rice, spices, dates, onions, cheese, limes, sugar, tea, coffee, and tobacco. And opium. Always got to get a bit of opium when possible. With Burton was his servant Nur, as well as Mohammed. Despite Burton's misgivings about the young man and his penchant for selfishness and petulance, he was a constant companion to Burton and had been valuable in procuring certain supplies and services. The caravan Burton was part of would have been a sight. There were 7,000 pilgrims of all ages, nationalities, economic status, and gender. Some were so poor they literally carried around a bowl and begged for food and water the entire time. Others had camels, horses, slaves, and servants, and traveled in luxury. And despite the size of the caravan, it was disciplined. Guns would sound out to strike the tents and another to begin moving, and they would stop at regular intervals to rest, eat, drink, and do devotions. The caravan often started early in the dark to avoid the harsh sun. The journey to Mecca was about 210 miles or 340 kilometers, but the desert was brutal. Of it, Burton would say, quote, Nowhere had I seen a land in which the Earth's anatomy lies so barren or one richer in volcanic and primary rock formations. End quote. The bones of dead animals and people littered the route, and every day there were deaths in the caravan. I want to note that Burton would spend chapters talking about the desert people of Arabia, but the ones that he talks quite a bit about are the Bedouin. At this point, there were many Bedouin within the caravan, and Burton spent time getting to know them and describes them in depth. He talks about their customs and habits, such as blood feuds, and he expresses his admiration of how they had adapted to the land around them. He talks about their mix of determination, gentleness, and generosity, of how they loved to joke and laugh, yet he notes that they could be frightening if they thought wronged or were out for vengeance. Throughout the expedition, Burton often told stories and talked about religion with his fellow pilgrims. The Bedouin, Burton found, were especially appreciative of his stories and poems and songs, and he sang regularly to them, earning their respect. A sheik named Abu Shawarib would befriend Burton and nickname him the father of mustaches. I want to mention one thing that Burton goes into great detail on in his book, and that is Islamic literature. Burton said that the branch of Islam he followed, Sufism, was poetic in its teachings, and I think he believed that even more when out in the desert, saying, quote, I cannot well explain the effect of Arab poetry on one who has not visited the desert. Apart from the pomp of words and the music of the sound, there is a dreaminess of idea and a haze thrown over the object, infinitely attractive but indescribable, end quote. I just love that quote. It's the kind of gem you find in Burton's writings amid all the details and data. Anyhow, regarding the people of Arabia, Burton's fondness for the Bedouin is a rare thing. I've said before that Burton is often intensely critical of other peoples and races and religions. His criticism can be brutal and often racially tinged. He's the kind of person who easily dismisses a group as lazy or thieves or whatever, but finds individuals to admire within that group. It's a general cynicism towards people an attitude only altered by demonstrating your worthiness. 
So back to our caravan. Despite its large size, the caravan would endure several attacks on the march south, but nothing would be serious enough to stop the pilgrimage to Mecca. The most formidable attack on the caravan was thwarted by a group of mountainous tribesmen called Wahhabis whom Burton had traveled with for a time. While most attacks were foiled with a few shots or simply pushing on, the fierce Wahhabis charged up the hills and scattered a couple hundred attackers. Burton approved of their actions. On September 9th, not far from Mecca, Burton would undergo a kind of ceremony in which he entered a state called Al-Iram. It is the beginning of his pilgrimage into Mecca. Each man takes a bath, shaves his head, cuts his nails, and trims his beard. He is then given an Iram, pilgrim's clothes, to wear. For Burton, these were two white cotton cloths that wrapped around a person like a toga. Going forward, the pilgrim was forbidden from shaving, sexual activity, or cutting one's nails. In the early hours of September 11th, Burton would enter Mecca, the holiest city of Islam. Only 10 or 12 Europeans had ever ventured into the city, which was teeming with tens of thousands of pilgrims. Burton would take lodging with the boy, Muhammad, whose home was in Mecca. The weary travelers would grab a short rest, but it was not long before they set off for the center of Mecca and the Great Mosque. Inside the Great Mosque was the Kaaba. This is the holiest spot in Islam. The Kaaba was a large, square, windowless building with an entrance 7 feet or 2 meters off the ground. The Kaaba is about 12 to 13 meters wide on each side, or 40 feet. Over the building is a huge black hanging, a kizwa, which is embroidered with inscriptions from the Quran. Burton tried to get a piece of the kizwa, but too many people were around. Later, Muhammad would acquire a piece of the kizwa and give it to him. On the southeast corner of the Kaaba was the famed black stone, the most revered relic of Islam. I want to stress the information that I am providing about this, or any site in Arabia, is based on Burton's descriptions. The Kaaba still exists today, and you can see photos and videos of it online, but dimensions have changed over the years. Burton's observations of the Kaaba and the Great Mosque are sort of fascinating. As we have said, he considered himself a Muslim. We talked last time about Burton's longtime fascination with mysticism. Sufism, which is what Burton followed, was the most mystical of the branches of Islam. For 150 plus years, writers have tried to dissect Burton's attitudes towards religion and Islam. A lot of writers seem to have this feeling that Burton wants, badly, to really embrace religion, but in the end, he just can't muster the fervor of so many of its adherents. He is almost envious of the rapture of the pilgrim's experience while in Mecca, as it's something that he just can't conjure. Now, I don't want to dwell too much on Burton's religious beliefs, but I want to give you a few lines from Farwell's biography on Burton, and the first refers to Sufism. It says, quote, He was intrigued by its mysticism and moved by its poetry, but in his heart there dwelt no gods. End quote. Farewell would then add, when talking about the awe that the Muslims had upon reaching the Kaaba, say this about our Englishman quote, At this moment, Burton, the man of all faiths and of none, seems to have regretted his own lack of belief. He could imitate the feelings of others, but he knew it was not the same. Much as he might want to share this emotional experience, he could not. End quote. I think a lot of writers sort of have this take on Burton, and maybe it's correct. I don't think we will ever really know. But I also want to say that perhaps the near obsession historians have had about Burton's religious beliefs is the simple fact that he had embraced Islam and left behind the faith of his family and culture. That was a rare thing in his life. A lot of people probably just couldn't believe that or wanted to explain away the why of it all. In the end, it doesn't really matter that much what he believed or didn't. What matters is that he did embrace Islam to the degree that it helped him survive his journey, and it would be a key part of his life until he died. So while in Mecca, Burton would do all the proper prayers and follow all the rituals. He would walk around the Kaaba seven times and kiss the fabled black stone, 
which he examined at the same time. It's not big, only about seven inches long, and Burton guessed that it might be from a meteorite. There were other ceremonies as well, including a trip to Mount Arafat, about 20 kilometers or 12 miles from Mecca. On the journey there, no less than five people died in the hot sun. Burton estimated that 50,000 pilgrims spent the night on the slopes of the mountain. The next day, the masses thronged to a pillar called the Great Devil and tossed stones at it. At this point, Burton could now use the title of Haji, a person who had completed his pilgrimage to Mecca. He was also allowed to cover his head and wear normal clothing. Burton would get a rare opportunity to actually go inside the Kaaba, also called the Sanctuary, thanks to the work of the boy, Muhammad. Now, pilgrims are not required to go into the Kaaba, and many do not. The reason is that if you go inside, you are to never go barefoot again, take up fire with your fingers, or tell lies. Burton, of course, couldn't resist the opportunity. While inside, he managed to make some rough sketches onto his white pilgrim's clothing. So, Burton was, essentially, done with his hajj. He had other ceremonies and rituals to conduct, and he visited places of interest, such as the birthplace of the Prophet Muhammad. But sooner than later, it was time to depart. Burton's next destination was the port of Jeddah, directly to the west of Mecca, about 40 miles, or 65 kilometers. So it was not far, and it was over well-traveled routes. Burton and his servant Nur would head west on camels and complete the journey in one long 17-hour push. The boy Muhammad would accompany Burton, as he had business to attend in the city. Here Burton ran into one problem, and that was money. He was out of it. He had papers that allowed him to draw on credit from the Royal Geographical Society, but he couldn't just waltz into a place and announce who he was. Thus, he would wait outside the British consulate for hours until he spotted the vice consul. He would then slip the man a note, explaining the situation. From there, he was able to get some cash. Ten days later, on September 26th, Burton sailed up the Red Sea on an English steamer, a first-class ticket this time. By the way, when he boarded the ship, he was kicked by an English officer and told to get out of the way, a nice slur thrown into boot. Before departing, Burton would spend some time with Mohammed, but just before sailing, he would note a distance and coolness from the boy. Once the ship sailed, Burton would find out from Nur, the servant, that Mohammed had come up to him and told him that he knew that Mirza Abdullah was a Saib, meaning an Englishman from India. How exactly Mohammed had figured this out, we don't know. Perhaps Burton had made some slip, his guard dropping this close to finishing its journey. Again, we just don't know. We only know that the inquisitive young man had come very close to spoiling Burton's disguise, which would likely have meant his death. No matter Burton had done it, he had traveled to the cities of Medina and Mecca and returned alive. He would next sail up the Red Sea and spend some time in Egypt, mostly in disguise, recuperating and organizing his notes. When his leave was up, he would then head back to Bombay, which today is called Mumbai, because we can't forget that Burton was still an officer in the East India Company. There he would continue his writings and prepare for the next phase of his life. Now, a couple of comments about Burton at this time. First, he made one big mistake after returning from Mecca, and that was not going back to England. Instead, he hung out in Egypt. If he had returned to England, he could have used his considerable charms to do lectures and meet with influential people and tell them about his journey into Arabia. Because let's be clear, what Burton had done was noteworthy. People would have loved to hear about the dashing Englishman daring to slip behind the great curtain of Islam. The press and the public would have cheered. But Burton didn't do that and thus missed a great chance to gain some serious fame and make some important connections. Now, all was not bad, and that leads me to comment number two, and that is the fact that Burton was turning heads. Few Europeans combined the linguistic skills of Burton with the real-world survival skills needed to be an explorer. And on cue, that takes us to the Royal Geographical Society, which had on its table another expedition of exploration into the unknowns of the world. This was the Smalliland Expedition, 
and Burton asked to lead it. Somaliland was an independent kingdom in the Horn of Africa on the southern coast of the Gulf of Aden. At this time, little was known about the region beyond the coast. To correct that, the Royal Geographical Society wanted to send a team into the area. For Burton, it would present another daring opportunity, the chance to be the first white man to reach the inland city of Harar, an important commercial and trading center. As a note, one of the men on the team would be a young English officer named John Hanning Speak, who will be a pivotal character in Burton's life for the next decade. But the Somaliland expedition will be for next time. Now, I have a few final notes about today's adventure. First, as noted, Burton would write his story of his trip to Medina and Mecca. It would be called A Personal Narrative of a Pilgrimage to Al-Medina and Mecca. It was published in two volumes in 1855 and 1856. As I said, it is a handful, nearly a thousand pages of so much stuff, it's just hard to describe. Go read it if you want to be a total nerd, and perhaps have your eyeballs explode as Burton spends pages describing the weirdest stuff. The second comment is about the journey to Medina and Mecca. In some ways, it's a disappointment because it was not this sexy 2,000-mile romp across Arabia, but what he did was still considered amazing. He had gone into these cities and returned without getting caught. This was a journey where one mistake could get you killed. And even more impressive was the trove of information that Burton brought back. It was really unprecedented. And finally, I want to note that this journey is a template for exploration for Burton. So many explorers want to go to a place, raise their flag, and come home to an adoring public. But for Burton, exploration was not just about going to a specific location. It was about immersing yourself in those places and cultures. It was understanding the people and their language and customs. For Burton, his curiosity would not be satiated by photos and safe views from the road. The joy is discovering the nuances and intricacies of a place and its people. And so, that is going to wrap up our story for today. Next time, we will follow Burton back to the Middle East and Africa for the Somaliland expedition. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I will see you next time. I want to wrap up by noting that the Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other great podcasts, including Clever, a window into the humanity behind the design that forms our built world and informs our culture. And another is Fork in the Road, which explores the future of the food industry. That is airwavemedia.com. Hello, my name is Matt host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Troy host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast.